Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, my home island of Barbados. Today, after close to 400 years, cut ties with the Queen of England as the head of state and became the world's youngest republic. Our president is former Governor General Sandra Mason. This 55 years after we gained our independence from Britain. Um, Prince Charles, the future King of England, attended the ceremony representing the Queen. Let us hear a clip now where we will hear from President Sandra Mason, part of the presentation from Prince Charles, as well as the Barbados Prime Minister, Mia Motley. Let's go to that clip right now. Sandra Prunella Mason, do swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Barbados according to law, so help me God. On behalf of a grateful nation, but an even prouder people, we Therefore, present to you the designee for National Hero of Barbados, Ambassador Robin Rihanna Fenty. May you continue to shine like a diamond. From the darkest days of our past and the appalling atrocity of slavery, which forever stains our history, the people of this island forged their path with extraordinary fortitude. From this moment, every Barbadian becomes the living embodiment of the new republic. Whether fair or foul winds come our way, Vessel Republic Barbados has set sail on her maiden voyage. May she weather all storms and land her country and citizens safely on the horizons and shores which are ahead of us. David Commission, the ambassador from Barbados to CARICOM, which is the Caribbean uh, community. He's also active with the Caribbean Pan-African Network. And in another sea change in the Americas, Honduras will have its first woman president. This after more than a decade when a U.S.-backed coup deposed the democratically elected government of Manuel Zelaya. Now the former first lady, Ziamaro Castro de Zelaya, is on her path to victory. And for our weekly Earth Watch, we speak with agronomist and environmentalist who is based in Paraguay, Miguel Lovera. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari.
Dutch health authorities say the Omicron variant of the coronavirus was already in the Netherlands when South Africa alerted the World Health Organization about it last week. The Netherlands Health Institute found it in samples dating from November 19th and 23rd. South Africa first reported the variant to the WHO on November 24th. It remains unclear where or when the variant first emerged, but that hasn't stopped wary nations from rushing to impose travel restrictions mainly on Southern Africa. President Biden cited the emergence of the variant as he again urged people to get vaccinated and said his administration is preparing for the inevitable appearance of the variant in the U.S. Christopher Martinez reports. President Joe Biden gave a speech about the new variant from the White House. This variant is a cause for concern, not a cause for panic. The big questions about the variant now are how quickly it spreads, how severe an illness it causes, and whether it can evade immunity from vaccinations or earlier infections. Those questions will take a couple of weeks to answer. Biden says he's taking steps just in case. My team is already working with officials at Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson to develop contingency plans for vaccines or boosters if needed. The Omicron variant was first discovered in South Africa last week, although that's probably not where it first emerged. It's since been found in several southern African countries, as well as Israel, Hong Kong, Canada, and several European countries. Some nations, including the U.S., have enacted travel bans, though those mainly target the South African countries and not others. I'm Christopher Martinez. Attorneys for former President Trump are trying to persuade a federal appeals court to stop Congress from receiving call logs, drafts of speeches, and other documents related to the January 6th Capitol insurrection. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit is also hearing arguments from lawyers for the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection who are seeking the records. Trump's attorneys are trying to overturn a lower federal judge's ruling, allowing the National Archives and Records Administration to turn over the records. That judge, Tanya Chudkin, rejected Trump's claims that he could exert executive privilege overriding President Biden. Her ruling noted in part, presidents are not kings and plaintiff is not president. Given the stakes of the case, either side is likely to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Minnesota Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar hung up on a phone call with right-wing Republican Lauren Boebert just days after Boebert compared Omar to a bomb-carrying terrorist. Omar said she ended the call after Boebert refused to issue a public apology. Omar said in a statement afterwards that, quote, I believe in engaging with those we disagree with respectfully, but not when that disagreement is rooted in outright bigotry and hate. Omar said she decided to end the unproductive call. Boebert accused Omar of engaging in cancel culture by hanging up on her. I never want anything I say to offend someone's religion. So I told her that. She kept asking for a public apology. So I told Ilhan Omar that she should make a public apology to the American people for her anti-American, anti-Semitic, anti-police rhetoric. Omar called on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Republican Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy to take appropriate action. She said anti-Muslim bigotry has no place in Congress and normalizing such bigotry not only endangers her life, but the lives of all Muslims.
Jury selection begins today in the trial of a suburban Minneapolis police officer who says she meant to use her taser instead of her gun when she killed African-American Dante Wright during a traffic stop. Former Brooklyn Center officer Kim Potter is charged with manslaughter. Potter says she made an innocent mistake when she shot Wright. Prosecutors charged Potter, who resigned two days after the shooting, with first- and second-degree manslaughter, saying she was an experienced officer who was trained to know better. The National Labor Relations Board has ordered a new union election for Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, based on objections to the first vote that took place in April. Amazon spent about a year aggressively campaigning for warehouse workers in Bessemer to reject the union, which they ultimately did by a wide margin. The rare call for a do-over was first reported by the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, which spearheaded the organizing movement. In a 20-page decision, the regional director for the NLRB focused much attention on Amazon's installation of the U.S. Postal Service mailbox at the main employee entrance, The NLRB said by installing a postal mailbox at that entrance, Amazon essentially hijacked and gave a strong impression that it controlled the process. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner uh, Truth. Very happy today, a historic uh, day for me and so many uh, people who are from Barbados and who live on the island of Barbados. The Caribbean island of Barbados has officially become the first British Commonwealth in nearly 30 years to declare itself a republic. The people of Barbados have stood up, establishing the Republic of Barbados, which after close to 400 years is removing England's Queen Elizabeth II as head of state. In 2020, Prime Minister Mia Motley announced that Barbados would become a republic by Tuesday, November 30th, which marks the 55th anniversary of our independence. On Monday, November 29th, on that evening, during an emotional and powerful ceremony, the Queen's standard was lowered for the final time in a ceremony in Bridgetown's National Heroes Square. Governor General Sandra Mason, who has served as the Queen's representative on the island, was sworn in as our first president, Um, President Mason, the first woman admitted to the bar in Barbados, was elected to be the first president of Barbados almost unanimously in October of 2021 during a special sitting of the lower and upper houses of parliament. By the way, the Barbados parliament is the third oldest in the world. Barbados became a commonwealth realm in 1966, gaining an independent government but retaining the British monarch as head of state, which many have described as neocolonialism. Some of the history. On May 14, 1625, the first English ship, we are told, reached the island under the command of Captain John Powell, who claimed it on behalf of then King James I. Since then, 396 years ago, Barbados became an English colony. The name Barbados is derived from the Portuguese translation of quote, the bearded ones, which some say makes reference to fig trees on the island that have a beard-like appearance. 
after the British colonists wiped out the native uh, indigenous peoples, they turned it into a giant money-making machine, oppressing enslaved peoples and extracting resources like sugar. With the early introduction of sugarcane, Barbados became one of the richest of England's colonies in the world. Barbados created more wealth for England than the 13 U.S. colonies. The far eastern location of Barbados made the colony a major com commercial center for the transatlantic slave trade, especially with the British city of Bristol. Barbados came to be known as the jewel in the crown of the Caribbean. But these jewels were drenched in the blood, sweat, and tears of Black and Indigenous peoples. Today, the Newton Slave Burial Ground in Christ Church, which is the parish that I am from, and this burial ground, as it turns out, was practically right next to my village, but we had no idea it was there. But this Newton Slave Burial Ground remains the largest and earliest slave burial ground discovered in Barbados. Indeed, it is said to be one of the largest that have been discovered in the whole of the Americas. It is home to the remains of close to 600 enslaved men, women, and children who toiled and suffered through brutal plantation slavery. Between the 1630s and 1838, thousands of enslaved people were buried in unmarked graves in, in um, plantation cemeteries throughout the island. The harsh conditions endured by enslaved Africans resulted in several planned slave rebellions, the largest of which was Bussa's Rebellion, as it is called, in 1816. That, by the way, followed the Haitian um, Revolution of 1804, but Bussa's Rebellion in Barbados was suppressed by British troops. Bussa was born a free man in West Africa and was captured by merchants, sold to European slave traders and kidnapped to Barbados. And today, Barbados continues to spearhead CARICOMS, that's the Caribbean region campaign for reparations. Prime Minister Mia Motley, uh, who basically announced that Barbados would become a republic. She is the nation's first prime minister who was elected in 2018. She has overseen many progressive changes in Barbados, expanding access to health care, education, and housing for all. She has also campaigned for women's rights in all sectors of society. Last November, she ordered the removal of a statue of Lord Nelson. Now, Lord Nelson uh, was in uh, the square, Trafalgar Square in Barbados. That square is older than the Trafalgar Square in London, by the way. And Lord Nelson was a controversial uh, British naval figure from a prominent uh, position where the statue was placed in the capital city of Bridgetown and Barbados. Internationally, Mia Motley's government has promoted a Pan-Africanist agenda, opening embassies in Ghana and Kenya and advocating for reparations. She has also spoken out against interference by the United States and the Org Organization of American States, the OAS, in the region. 
Mayor Motley was one of the few leaders in the Caribbean region to speak out in defense of Haitian uh, human rights. And during the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow, Mayor Motley made waves with a well-received speech telling the leaders of the world's largest economies to try harder to avert catastrophic climate change. And she described rising sea levels as a death sentence, especially for small island nations like Barbados, which has a mostly uh, flat terrain. And on this, she spoke for so much of the global south, in particular, uh, the small islands. Changes in weather patterns pose significant problems to Barbados, which has been campaigning for urgent action on the environment from industrialized nations. During COP26, Mayor Motley proposed that 1% of revenues from the sale of fossil fuels in countries that contributed most to climate change go into a loss and damage fund for countries of the global south, which are hardest hit. She said this would generate over $70 billion per year. I'd like to welcome uh, David Comision, Barbados's ambassador to the Caribbean community of CARICOM. He's also active in the Caribbean Pan-African Network. He's an attorney, writer, and political activist. Comision is the author of the book, It's the Healing of the Nation, The Case for Reparations in an Era of Recession and Recolonization. He is also the author of Marching Down the Wide Streets of Tomorrow, Emancipation Essays and Speeches. Uh, David Comision, welcome back. I'm here. Uh, so, David Comision, uh, I'm sure you were there last night. A very emotional moment for all Bajans, as we call ourselves. I listened as, as much as I, I could before I had to turn in, because uh, I rise at 2.30 in the morning uh, to prep for this show. So, David Comision, um, your thoughts now for the island, because we have to dig a bit deeper than the fact that we're now a republic. What does it mean? But we are uncovering some of our history. You have people like myself finding out that I grew up next to the largest slave burial ground in the whole of the Americas and didn't know about it. We were not taught our history. David Comision. Well, you know, the Barbados story is a very profound story for black people, um, but for the whole cause of, of human dignity. Uh, the reality is that Barbados was Britain's mother colony in the Caribbean. Barbados was to the Caribbean what Virginia and New England were to the 13 um, American uh, British colonies. And um, Barbados has the dubious distinction of being the world's first slave society, not, not simply a society in which slavery was a feature, but a society in which uh, completely, totally founded on slavery, everything, its economy, its social structure, its ideology. And, um, and it was in Barbados that in the 1640s, that the British settlers developed the model of the slave plantation um, uh, model of production, um, generating superabundant profits on the basis of the superabundant, the super exploitation of African labor. Uh, once they developed the model in Barbados, 
They then took it to Jamaica in 1655, and um, and then from Jamaica to the Carolinas and, and all across the, the 13 American colonies. So this is Britain's mother colony. Almost the, um, in, 16, in, in 2025, it would be 400 years from that initial um, colonizing mission of Britain in, in, in um, 1625. So for Barbados, to be making this transition, to be rejecting um, the remaining vestiges of British rule, to be throwing off um, the British royal family, the royal family that played such a critical role in developing the transatlantic slave trade and the whole system of African enslavement, going way back to Queen Elizabeth I in, in 1562. This is very significant. Symbolically, it is, it is very significant, but it is also going to have a very practical um, and concrete effect on the other Caribbean countries um, because, you know, the, those countries, those Caribbean community countries that are still holding on to the monarch of, of Britain as the head of state, um, the, the, the message is going to be, look, if, if, the mother, if Britain's mother colony, the, the colony that was known as a little England, if that um, nation can make the break, then all of us can. Uh, so there are eight still holding on to the queen as the head of state, and I am going to predict that... Um, in, in very short order, um, they are all going to follow the, the Barbados example. Uh, yes, uh, one would hope so. But um, David Commission, we we know that usually on a formal occasion like this, you have messages uh, sent from heads of state around the world. But there was a message um, from the president of Ghana. Tell us the significance of it because it felt a bit, on the one hand, we're cutting ties, um, well, with the crown in the UK. I mean, clearly, relations will still continue with the UK and the, pres the presence of Prince Charles. He made that absolutely clear of being, quote-unquote, a friend of Barbados and made some reference to the atrocities of, of slavery, nothing about the wealth his family got as a result of that. But tell us the significance of the message from the president of Ghana and the moves that Prime Minister Mia Motley, some of which you have been involved in, with the closer ties to the continent of Africa. Oh yes, well, that that was extremely significant. In fact, um, the televised message of President um, Nana Akufo-Addo of Ghana actually began the inauguration, the formal part of the inauguration um, ceremony. And it, it was a very, very strong message um, emphasizing the ancestral uh, uh, links um, between Barbados and Ghana and our intention um, to solidify our solidarity and our, and our partnership in the present and the future. Yes, um, we in Barbados are very clear. We, we, have, we have reasserted our Atlantic destiny that... Um, 
people of Africa are our kith and kin, particularly the people of Ghana, because many of our ancestors came from what was then known as the Gold Coast, the, the area that is now uh, modern-day modern day Ghana. And so just over the past year, Barbados has established for the first time an embassy in Ghana and one, and one in Kenya. And um, within CARICOM, Barbados is pushing very hard this idea of a partnership between the African Union and CARICOM. So you're quite right. I mean, Britain will remain very important to us. Um, Barbados is, our economy is built around tourism, and our biggest, um, single biggest tourism market is, is Britain. So, so that will that will continue, and Britain will be very important. But we know that our future destiny lies with the continent of Africa. In fact, our Prime Minister has gone so far as to say that we suspect that Barbados is probably underpopulated, and that we probably need an infusion of young, economically active people, you know, to help bolster economic activity and tax revenues and and help to um, take care of the aging population because Barbados is a relatively socially developed country um, where people live to a very, very old age, and so we have a progressively aging population. So there's a suspicion that we need, um, we're going to need an injection of, of young migrants, and we have made it clear. We look to our Caribbean brothers and sisters first, but thereafter, we look to the we look to the continent of Africa, so you can expect um, to see not just Barbados, but the Caribbean community uh, developing a very strong partnership with Africa in the months and years ahead. Right, and given all of the uh, really beautiful ceremony that took place uh, last night and, and also Rihanna's presence, of course, my entire audience will know who she is, an ambassador uh, to Barbados making an appearance and, and receiving an award uh, from our prime minister. But uh, on a you know another level, a, a deeper level here, the hidden history of Barbados. Um, you know, I read an article, I think just a few days ago, that the newspaper coverage uh, that happened during the slavery days in, in Barbados will now become more accessible for Bajans to be able to see. Hopefully a lot of us um, will be able to go into the archives and, and trace our ancestry. You're right about Ghana. We have heard, we have to verify it that I'm my mother's side, our family uh, came from uh, Ghana, and on my father's side, uh, from Benin. But part of this history, and I, I, I just want to mention, bring up again, this Newton slave uh, burial ground um, land that on a, that existed on a plantation that was established by Samuel Newton in the 1660s. You know, I grew up in Christchurch, right near there. I went to Girls Foundation School. I had no idea that 
this burial ground was there. And David, to be honest with you, when I read about it and found out it was deeply disturbing, I actually threw up actually, because realizing, I mean, just the brutality of what that represented of these 600 souls. But the the slavery of Barbados was so brutal. You know, tell us a little bit about that, that there was a tremendous turnover. I read somewhere, I heard that the average age um, of uh, slaves in Barbados, the lifespan was 18 years old, not 18 years in slavery, but 18 years old. And that the Barbados slavers was so brutal, um, they were imported, they were sent to the, the Carolinas to train people in how to brutalize slavery. Tell us, tell us a bit about that. And also about the tremendous wealth that Barbados created, David. Well, for, first of all, let me make the point that Barbados has the second largest slavery archive in the world. The only country that has more um, documentation, historical records about the period of enslavement is Britain itself. And um, Barbados, the Barbados government has just put in place a project to digitize all of the the, the records and to make them available not only to Barbadians but to the world. And you see, the Barbados historical records are important for all, for virtually all black people because Barbados being the most easterly of the Caribbean islands, it was the one, it was the island closest to the west coast of Africa. And in the era of sailing ships, it was the natural first port for the slave ships coming across the Middle Passage. So, so the North American colony, many, many of the slave colonies of, of, of America, of the Caribbean and the Americas, uh, were populated from Barbados. So the Barbadian records are critical um, virtually to all black people, certainly, of this Western Hemisphere. And you're quite right. You know, as I said, the, the model, the slavery model, the Barbados Slave Code of um, 16, 1661, that, that was the model that was uh, where they worked out all of the details. You know, you hear about the Willie Lynch letter. Well, it was in Barbados that they, they worked out the system for enslaving people, for building a society and an economy based on slavery and all of the rules and punishments and, and regulations and restrictions. And having worked out the model, then that legislative model was taken um, to, to the other areas of, of British um, colonization. So, and Barbados was uh, virtually a total um, plantation society. Barbados is a very a cultivable land, you know, it's not a, it's not a country of mountains and inaccessible areas. So virtually the whole island was given over to slave plantations, and and so the the level of oppression of African people in Barbados was virtually unprecedented. There was no there was nowhere for you to run to, so you you couldn't really escape um, the, the the oppression. And yes, I mean, the, the lifespan, you know, it was a capitalist model. So you, you invest a certain amount of money in, in purchasing a slave, um, bringing him into the colony or her, and you calculate that if I work this slave to death in six or seven years, I will make um, X times my initial investment. 
And so the lifespan of the slave, I mean, it varied at um, uh, different periods in the history of the colony. But there was, there was a time when a, um, a slave was basically worked to death in about six, in about six years. And so there's a, saying, there's a saying that you can find a Barbadian anywhere in the world. Barbados, Barbados rivals um, Ireland, and, and maybe Barbados might even be ahead of Ireland, as the country that that has provided perhaps on a per capita basis the most migrants, people who have gone all over the world. And why did, why did Barbadians seek to escape this island and, and end up in Cuba and Panama and, and New, New United States and, and, and Brazil and Colombia, even, even in the Belgian Congo? And it's because um, for the masses of the black people in the slavery period, but also in the in the immediate in the post emancipation period when the, the white planter class still maintained their position of power in, in the country, life was short, nasty and, and brutish and oppressive for the masses of our people. And so Barbados were always um, seeking an escape, looking for greener pastures. And it's really only with the coming to power of black governments in the 1940s and 1950s, you know. By 1950, we, we had secured the right of um, universal adult suffrage, one man and one woman, um, one vote. And, and, and we were able to, uh, black people were able to form political parties, um, get, get their hands on the power of government and to use the power of government to uplift the, the standards of our people, um, you know, hospitals and clinics and schools and housing areas. And so much so, I mean, uh, the, the black people of Barbados and their governments did such a fantastic job that by the 1990s, the United Nations was rating Barbados as number 19 on the world's human development um, index. But that, that was a tribute, really, to the superhuman efforts of black Barbadians and their political leaders um, to lift the country from um, the, 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 the hell hole that it had been um, under slavery and colonialism. David, sadly, my immediate family, uh, my mother and father and the three of us, three children, were part of that migration that you talked about as they made the calculation that it would be better for us um, to actually get out of my small village there in, in Christchurch and be able to get a higher education and have more opportunities that were not available at, at the time, uh, you know, of that. But uh, David, just finally, because we, we're running a little short of time here, um, Richard Drax um, sits in, in the UK Parliament today. Um, recall the suit of the Mau Mau, um, who got some reparations for the oppression and the suffering that they received. And there is now this move of reparations. And I could tell you, David, again, this Newton thing has really <laughs> upset me terribly. I mean, and everything that you say. So I wondered if you would just say something um, about this movement for, for reparations and for reparatory justice, because here you have this guy running around in parliament whose family uh, gained because the slave owners in Barbados, they got reparations after emancipation, mm -hmm. but we didn't get any 
You know what I mean? So there are a lot of them running around with that wealth today. And meanwhile, we have a, a lot to do, including uh, stopping our island from sinking into the sea, given this whole um, environmental crisis. Just your final thoughts, David Commission. Yes. Well, in 2013, the Caribbean community um, countries, including Barbados, launched a claim for reparations for native genocide and for African enslavement. And I just have to correct one thing you said um, in the beginning. Um, the native people of Barbados were decimated, not, not by the British, they were decimated by the Spanish who raided the island uh, for slaves, enslaved the people, took them away from Barbados. So by the time the British landed in 1625, that um, the Spanish had already depopulated Barbados of, of, its, of its native people. So our claim, our Caribbean community claim for reparations is not only against Britain, it's against all of the European powers, Spain, Portugal, um, Holland, all of them that were involved in, in, in enslavement and the slave trade um, in, in the Caribbean. Now, Sir Richard Drax, who is the richest man in Britain's parliament, that's a very um, interesting case. Um, his, his ancestor, Sir James Drax, was, one of, was on that first, that, the, the, the voyage, the ship that came to Barbados in 1627 that actually started the settlement. You know, they visited in 1625, then they came back in 1627 to start the settlement. One of the persons on that ship was Sir James Drax. He established a plantation in the 1630s known as Drax Hall in the parish of St. George. That plantation is still in existence, still functioning as a sugar plantation almost 400 years later. It has never stopped functioning as um, a sugar plantation. Sir James Drax was, if you want to find one architect of the system of slavery-based plantation production, Sir James Drax is the key architect way back in, in, in the 1640s, the architect of the so-called um, Sugar Revolution. He took, um, this, he helped to take the system to, to Jamaica. There's also... He built a Drax Hall in Jamaica as well, a plantation identical to the plantation house um, in Barbados. A lot of the wealth that they plundered from Barbados and Jamaica was siphoned off to England, um, where they purchased you know, tremendous properties. And today, the representative of that family is a member of the House of Commons and is, in fact, the richest uh, member of the House of Commons. The Barbados National Task Force on Reparations has just decided that it is going to focus on the case of Trax Hall and the Trax family because our reparations claim thus far has focused on the national governments. Secondly, we have focused on private sector institutions, banks, insurance companies, universities. So we are going to be breaking new ground now by doing a study on um, the Drax family and determining to what extent a family as an institution where you can actually trace the institutional links of the, the present-day members right back 
um, to those centuries of, of enslavement. Um, the modalities for, for, for targeting a family are for reparation. So that's a new project that we are now about to undertake. And um, so the Drax family will be, will be, in a sense, the precedent. And, 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 and you know, depending on, on what we arrive at, then we may extend it to, to other families as well. But yes, um, we are, we are, we are on our course for reparations. We know it is not going to be easy. These people are not simply going to, um, you know, cave in and admit admit their guilt. It's, we 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 are in the process now of developing um, an international campaign. Um, we are reaching out to the African continent, the African Union. We are we are saying to Africa, look. Come and join us in the reparations campaign that we started in in 2013, and we know that we have to make it into an international mass movement. We have to build it the same way we were able to build the anti-apartheid movement in the 1970s and 1980s into a powerful international cause celeb. Uh, we have to do a similar thing with the reparations movement. Absolutely. Well, David, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there, but we're going to have to continue this uh, conversation, serious business we're talking about here. And and we are on our way. This is not over. So becoming a republic certainly opens the way for us to not only know a lot more about our history, but uh, learn a lot more about what is owed to us uh, throughout the region and throughout the diaspora. David Kamisiong, Thank you so very much for your work and congratulations to all of my, you and all my compatriots there back home. Thank you, David. Yes, thank you, Margaret. It's a great, great time for us. Uh, we're really looking forward to the future with great anticipation. All righty. And we are going to take a short station break now. And coming up, the election in um, Honduras, another uh, huge change happening in the Americas. Uh, Laura Carlson uh, will be joining us. And then uh, from Paraguay, uh, Miguel Lovera. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Calypso music by David Rudder as we um, honor the new republic, the Republic of Barbados, my home island. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio, and you can like and friend us on Facebook. We're worldwide and nationwide on SoundCloud, and today I would like to give a shout-out to the entire um 
diaspora of Barbados, Bajans in, in New York and Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and Southern California, everywhere we are. And internationally, I would like to give a shout out to our um, SoundCloud listeners in Barbados. We are now going to turn our attention uh, to the election in Honduras, a sea change happening after uh, more than a decade of the U.S.-backed government's overthrow of the democratically elected government of Manuel uh, Zelaya. Honduras, of course, being um, known as the second most impoverished country in the Americas after uh, Haiti. And I would like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth. Our segments are short today, so I apologize uh, for that for the rest of the hour. But uh, Laura Carlson, a director of the Americas program, works with Just Associates. She's a, a journalist and as a regular on our weekly roundtable and hope Laura will be able to expand a bit more on our weekly roundtable this coming Friday. Uh, Laura, we have to spend a bit of time <laughs> on the new, the newest republic in the, in the world, <laughs> the Republic of Barbados. So um, uh, today we do want you, though, to tell us about what is happening in, in Honduras and the significance of uh, the fact of the election results there. Yeah, well, first of all, congratulations to Barbados. This is something that has a huge impact on all the continent as a breath of fresh air to, uh, in terms of anti-colonial trends and the struggles of many peoples in all the countries. In Honduras, we also have a breath of fresh air. The election results so far with uh, officially there's only 51% counted, but the trend is very clear because there's a 20-point margin for the first, what would be the first woman president of the country, Xiomara Castro, the center-left candidate from the Libre Party. And there's also been a very high turnout and peaceful election. So those are three major accomplishments for the, for the Honduran people that they have been able to do this in spite of living under what many call a narco-state, a regime that's become progressively dictatorial, a regime that has refused to give up power, and now we see that it's looking very likely that she will, in fact, be able to take power as the first woman president of the country. Many people turned out to vote. There was a lot of hope. There's been, as there have been in many countries, you know, a long-standing debate about how much can you really accomplish as social movements through electoral processes. But there was almost a consensus among many of the social movements, and we've been talking to them throughout this pre-electoral and now this post-electoral period, that in this case it was very important to go out and vote, to get rid of the regime of Juan Orlando Hernandez, who's been accused of narco-trafficking, in courts in the United States, his brother was sentenced for money laundering and drug trafficking, and he himself was implicated as well as being implicated in other scandals of misuse of government funds within Honduras. It became an unsustainable situation for the Honduran people, and there was almost a consensus regarding that, which led to this 20-point irreversible margin for Xiomara Castro. She's looking at a government program that would begin to take back natural resources that have caused so many conflicts and so many deaths among indigenous communities and others. 
within the country that are fighting the imposition of mega projects that take their land. She's promised to um, return to democracy to revert many of the laws that had concentrated powers in the executive and and eliminated checks and balances, and also to have more rights for women, including the right to choose to terminate a pregnancy. She was vilified for this during the campaign in misogynist attacks on her, um, and eventually probably moved toward a constitutional assembly that would enable them to really look at the laws and begin to build a stronger democracy. This will create pushback. So far, the State Department has not congratulated her, but they are watching the elections. They're waiting for a more official result. It looks like that will happen. However, from declarations of people who are in the Pentagon, they will resist certain aspects of the government, including demilitarization. The military has become a fundamental part of the mechanisms of social control in the country that, of course, the people want to see stop as soon as possible, and uh, there's resistance, apparently, on any moves to get the army out of public security paths and uh, its current role in terms of putting down social movements. So it won't be an easy government, but it looks like Xiomara Castro has won the elections and will indeed be recognized. Well, that is good news indeed. And Laura Carlson, I think you're absolutely right. Expect the United States uh, to, again, uh, meddle as they did with the government of uh, Manuel Zelaya. I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there, though, Laura, but we'll pick it up again on Friday because there were some other significant elections that happened in the region, including Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Chile. But thank you, Laura Carlson, for joining us. And apologies for the short segment today. Thank you. No problem. Looking forward to continuing the discussion. All righty. Um, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and we're going to wrap up our show now welcoming our next guest for our weekly Earth Watch. We want to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. They partner with us for our weekly Earth Watch and Earth Minute. I'd like to welcome Miguel uh, Lovera, who is an agronomist um, and also an environmentalist. And uh, uh, main focus of his work is understanding the interface of science and policy. Currently, he's the general uh, coordinator of a non-governmental organization carrying out environmental monitoring uh, in uh, Paraguay. Uh, Miguel, thank you for joining us. Yes, hello, Margaret. Uh, it's a pleasure for me uh, to be in your program and with your audience in such a fantastic day for for you, for your fellow countrymen and women, and and also for we what we just heard is from Honduras. It, I'm I'm really excited by all of this. It brings tears to my eyes, I can tell you. But, um, Miguel, um, your thoughts, um, uh, again, apologies for the shorter segment today, but um, your thoughts in terms of COP26 and as it relates to the environmental work you are doing in Paraguay. Yes, well, it, it, it we really consider it, we actually expected this. We we. Um, we think what happened there was just a farce, another additional farce, to, uh, as if we wouldn't have already experienced many of those, because um, all the, the, the real uh, content 
of the negotiations have been emptied, uh, emptied by these non-committal positions like these pledges, uh, yeah, okay, voluntarily we'll be going ahead and we will reduce deforestation and we will reduce methane emissions from cattle ranching, but no serious real hard targets and commitments by countries and by corporations as they introduced corporations in, in the negotiations as governments did. They should uh, do it for a, a serious reason. Uh, so what we have at the moment is just a wishy-washy commitment and the pledges. Uh, I mean, not commitments, but pledges. Okay, I promise you, I will do this. You, but uh, their track record is actually really uh, disappointing. And so this is what we see that came out of these uh, two-week negotiations. Right, but uh, clearly there was a movement that um, made its presence felt and the world knew about it. And also, what about the demand coming from uh, governments of the Global South facing, um, you know, whose people are facing the first and foremost, the impacts of environmental devastation that the governments of the Global North pay up um, for you know, to help to repair this damage and to help stop uh, global warming. Uh, Miguel. Yes, I don't want to subtract any merits to uh, the actions by civil society and the negotiators from the global south. But uh, the case is that the real costs w that we face in the south it's really it's much more. It's, you should multiply whatever pledge by 100. So the governments who are really promoting this uh, uh, state of, uh, of things are not really willing to pay the prices, the price which is involved here. Uh, if you look at the, the scenarios a family or, or even a nation in a, in a small island state has to um, face with every year, it's, it's really uh, becoming uh, more of a burden on their GDP than ever before. So um, a serious negotiation would start with that kind of analysis. How much is it that you really need? How much is it that the global south really need? How much is it that the global, I mean, that the citizen in the global south needs to adapt to this uh, uh, reality? And, and they were talking as if this would be something that they could uh, still work about and, 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 and negotiate a, an easier way, you know? And for us in the global south, and particularly the, those in, in interstates, it's uh, it's a, a catastrophic reality, and every year is a stronger and and, and meaner reality. So the the whole approach uh, is is this non-commitment and this uh, uh, bickering type of. Uh, uh, negotiations, and there's no more time for that. We wasted, I mean, they wasted it. Uh, our governments and northern governments wasted uh, almost three decades in, in negotiating the, this, uh, um, the solutions, potential solutions. And now we are stuck with these uh, um, 
pledges and 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 and, and uh, empty promises that will not deliver in the end of the day. Right. And Justin, the we have about a minute and a half or so. What about some of the challenges you are facing? Um, well, not only you, people in, in Paraguay are facing in terms of environmental uh, devastation. Um, any of the impacts you have seen from the monitoring uh, that you are doing in the regions that you're working with? Well, we are facing uh, massive deforestation. We are going to see the last uh, wild tree, let's say, wild tree outside of uh, protected areas, uh, which are only about four or five percent of, 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 of the general of, of the whole uh, surface of uh, um, uh, land surface, um, in about five years, five to six years. So this is the reality we're looking at, and that means a lot more climate change a lot more, well, much less biodiversity, almost all gone. And, uh, of course, it, it means uh, famines, droughts, and extreme weather, uh, climate events uh, for the population. And, and in the scenario that I just described about uh, adaptation and the lack of funds, this will mean that uh, people will have a much worse, uh, much worse living conditions. So this is regrettably the scenario we, we're looking at in the next uh, decade or so. Miguel Rivera, unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it there. There's so much that I want to talk with you about. So we will be back in touch with you. Thank you uh, for taking the time to join us. Appreciate My it. Pleasure. All righty. Um, we are out of time. By the way, that music is by David Rudder. Again, Rally Around the West Indies is in the Caribbean region. Uh, we were known a day for those of us from Barbados, Bajans, as we call it, to celebrate. Uh, we are now the world's youngest republic, newest republic, I should say. Um, I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. Thank all of the guests, our audio engineer, Vendel Handy, our assistant producer Romero Funes. If you like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! Thank you for listening, and you all, please stay safe, and shout out to all my fellow Bajans. This is Margaret Prescott.